One of the jobs I have is to advise the Minister on his appointments to the boards of these organisations. You determine what needs to be done, you develop the policies. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. In this episode of In the Know, ACCT Director of GISS and Special Projects Norma Goldstein talks with Julia Kennedy, who works in the funding agency for New Zealand's tertiary education system. In case you aren't familiar with the term tertiary education, it's synonymous with post-secondary education in the United States. New Zealand may seem like a world away, but I think you'll find that there are a lot of similarities between our two systems and a lot to learn. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and your position um, in tertiary education in New Zealand. Um, I work for the funding agency for New Zealand tertiary education, and that includes the universities, the polytechs, uh, private training establishments, and industry training organizations. They're all funded to a certain extent by the government based on the number of students they have. I work for the monitoring and crown ownership section and I'm a principal advisor there and I've been there for the last seven years now. Now you know ACCT works with boards and you mentioned to me that you do um, a lot of work with boards. Tell us um, a little bit more about the kind of work that you do with boards. My specific role is to um, support governance, good governance in the universities and the polytechnics and I do that in a number of ways. One of the jobs I have is to advise the Minister on his appointments to the boards of these organisations. He appoints generally four members uh, for the polytechnics. The other four are appointed by the council or the board itself. I believe that's called self-perpetuating. <laughs> <laughs> and for the uh, universities, they can have up to 12 members on their board, so they um, appoint the balance, the eight themselves. Now, we work with uh, a lot with boards and on a variety of issues. Our sector, however, are the community colleges. I notice you use the term polytechnics. Can you explain the... Um, higher education um, in New Zealand? Right. Well, the universities are very comparable to universities everywhere mm -hmm. and they rate on the international scale and I believe we've uh, got the University of Auckland in the top 100 internationally. So um, they would have a very similar uh, focus on research as well as on um, undergraduate education, so a balance of undergraduate and postgraduate education at the universities. Their main income would be from the government but also from international students who pay a full fee and also from their research. Yeah, we have quite a few international students as well. Right. Well, they have um, been important in the what I'm calling the polytechnic sector. It's officially known as institutions of technology and polytechnics, ITPs. Their mandate is a challenging one. It's to be all things, basically, to all people. <laughs> uh, and Sounds in, like our community colleges. <laughs> well, this is, this is rather what I thought, Absolutely. that there would be some clear comparisons with it, your community colleges. Um, they're particularly challenged in the rural areas 
We have 16 at the moment, but we have a uh, an, what's called an ITP Roadmap 2020 project that is humming along as I speak and will report to the Minister um, initially in October on a new structure for polytechnics in New Zealand. And it's quite likely that at the end of this we'll have fewer polytechnics. The minister did mention one, but I think that was um, <laughs> will be a little bit too challenging because we need to make sure that each one responds to the regional demands that it has. Uh, very good. It, I loved what you said about um, uh, a polytechnic being, you know, something for everyone, and that really what, what community colleges do. Uh, the traditional student, everyone thinks the traditional student is, you know, the 18-year-old who's just graduated from high school, who, you know, may not be sure what he or she wants to do when they enter a college. Mm -hmm. And we're finding that uh, the not what we used to call the non-traditional student, the older student, the married student, the student with children, the single mothers, the single fathers, working people, I mean, all, all of the, um, the entities um, are... are constituents are our students um, and so it sounds like the polytechnics um, um, one of the things that our comprehensive community colleges have is that they they have the liberal arts they have um, most of them and many of them offer uh, workforce education jobs for you know related to jobs and and workforce preparation um, and they also have um, basic skills and you know a variety of, of different programs yeah. and and this has been in the last um, decade so many of them now have baccalaureate programs yeah. and so uh, are your polytechnics um, what are the the end the, the outcomes, are, are these degrees, certificates, um, such as we have? Uh, there's a variety of outcomes. Um, the majority would be skills-based and vocational-based as well. So that, for example, um, many of the polytechnics offer degrees in nursing. Um, <clears throat> I was fortunate to attend graduation at um, a newly merged polytechnic called the um, Toy Ohomai Institute of Technology and uh, this brought together two separate um, institutions and is now one of the largest <coughs> and um, <coughs> I really enjoyed the day I think graduations are great fun and I enjoy dressing up in regalia <laughs> as well um, and I wandered around um, talking to the students and asking them what they were going to do next one of the most delightful stories was um, about a solar mother who had been working for minimum age, um, minimum wage in childcare, <coughs> and uh, got a place on a nursing course and um, completed her bachelor of nursing, and is now a, um, a theatre nurse at uh, one of the largest hospitals in the area. And I think that that sort of life-changing role um, that is quite special probably to your community colleges as it, as it is um, for our polytechnics and institutes of technology. 
Yes, uh, ACVT has a governance <coughs> institute for student success, and it's those success stories that really make the difference. It makes our, you know, something in your heart feels really good, and you're really pleased about what you're doing, and you know why you're here, and and it, it makes all the difference. Students, you know, uh, and so we focus a lot with our boards on students. Um, I am so um, interested in uh, more uh, about the polytechnics. Many of our community colleges develop partnerships with industry because uh, you know they obviously want students industry to hire our students I've worked at several different community colleges and one of my community colleges um, you know the automotive program and there were major you know companies right there on the campus what are the connections the polytechnics have with industry in New Zealand um something similar but perhaps not quite as um, engaged as you describe and certainly um, that's part of the strategic direction for the future uh, and I think it sounds to me like a great opportunity <laughs> for them. There's one important um, segment of the tertiary sector that I haven't mentioned and that's the Wananga now these, that's W-A-N-A-N-G-A, <laughs> and there are three Wananga that are funded by the Tertiary Education Commission, um, and they provide uh, education within a Maori context, and they're very successful at doing so. One of the largest, probably the largest, um, offers uh, courses uh, remotely as well throughout New Zealand. Um, one of the other smaller ones um, provides courses up to PhD level, so mm -hmm. the full range of tertiary. Um, and um, the third one is cited as an example of a very small successful institution um, and it has, it, it, it brings um, its students a long way from the time of entry to the time of leaving. I don't know what you call it here. In the UK it's called distance travelled. I think we call well, which was very confusing when I went to work from the UK to New Zealand uh -huh. where it's called value add. Um, so that's the, the position that the student enters the institution and the, the level at which they leave, a comparison there. Okay. So the Wananga are generally very successful. They, their students aren't limited to Māori, um, other um, Pacific Island students and also non-Māori in Pacific Island may choose to attend them simply because of the nature of the um, teaching which is very much focused on the achievement of the individual and um, yeah. Now I know New Zealand's an island nation, and and I've learned that it's two islands. My geography is terrible. I apologize for that. Um, and so the pro the the pathway tip. You know, I'll I'll just describe a typical pathway. Students graduate from high school, mm. and then they they go either go to a community college or they'll go to a four year university, mm. um, and then many of them or you know. That's the quote unquote the traditional student that I had talked about that we're finding finding out may may or may not be, you know the the bulk of the students in our current community colleges, uh, and at, and after um, 
out of the community college, they earn a, an associate's degree. And as I said, many of those community colleges are now offering baccalaureate programs, including the nursing one that uh, you had mentioned. And then they go on to a university, and then they, they get a bachelor's degree, or what we call a BA or a BS, Bachelor's of Arts or Bachelor's of Science. And there are, are you know, Bachelor's of Technologies. There, there's a, a variety of of them depending on how students specialize and then if they want um, like you and I they may have gone on to uh, to higher degrees uh, doctorates uh, uh, we call that graduate school and then some of us go e even on for more study and they call that postgraduate mm -hmm. what kind of pathway would be the traditional pathway uh, in New Zealand Probably not as much from the ITP sector to the university sector, although the Tertiary Education Commission has um, been collecting and making available a huge amount of data on the learner pathway. One of our recent developments was to take over or to merge with Careers New Zealand, and so we've got um, an interest in students um, as our chief executive says, from 7 to 74. <laughs> I'm not quite sure why the cutoff is 74. I haven't <laughs> asked him. Um, but um, it, it does mean that we are, we call it the pipeline. We are particularly interested in the pipeline. Um, and this is a key um, tool in strategic planning, both at the government level, but also at an institutional level because we're now able to see where the students coming out of a particular school or college um, go and whether they stay in the region, whether they go out of the region and um, the catchment area for each of our tertiary institutions as well. They tend, the institutions haven't been able so far to specialise, they have been all things to all people and if they were, this may well alter the patterns, but um, generally people um, do tend to stay within their region, certainly for community college, ITP. Hey everyone, I want to take a quick break to remind you all that the 50th annual ACCT Leadership Congress is coming up and we're looking for innovative presentations from ACCT member colleges and affiliates. Check out congress.acct.org for our call for presentations, to register, to find out about sponsorship opportunities and more. And now, back to the show. That location, location, location is yes. really so very important. And um, as you mentioned, you know, remote education, distance learning, um, it's a term that we typically use. And so it sounds like there are a variety of pathways. Um, both of us work with governing boards. As I listen to you, um, Recently, ACCT and the Governance Institute for Student Success, we've been working with state systems. So it sounds as if New Zealand has a statewide system. You have a um, one uniform governing board, and this governing board, I assume, represents different parts of New Zealand, and they come together and they develop a strategic plan, and, and I, 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 we call them statewide goals or, or national goals. 
Um, we have a tertiary education strategy with six key strategic areas, um, but each institution has its own governing board and it is um, the Education Act protects the autonomy and the independence of those institutions. Excellent. So the governing board is responsible for um, the academic achievement, for the financial health, um, and for determining the strategic direction. One of its most important roles is to appoint the chief executive, mm -hmm. and that cannot be delegated. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> Earlier, you and I um, talked a little bit, and you mentioned frameworks. You work by frameworks. Can you talk a little bit more about your frameworks? Making our appointments to the governing board or advising the minister or making his appointments, to be precise, um, we use a skills framework. And that skills framework is uh, linked very closely to the legislative requirements, the statutory requirements of both the council members and the boards themselves. So we highlight, for example, previous governance experience and um, strategic ability and financial acumen. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, then a variety of other aspects, including some experience of uh, tertiary education, if possible. Um, but it's not critical. We've been um, nominating uh, for the minister to consider people with a business background who have been successful on commercial boards in order to focus on the need to ensure that the financial health of these organizations. Uh, community involvement is another aspect that we will consider as well. Um, we're particularly interested if somebody has experience in organizational performance improvement. Mm. Uh, so if they've worked in a turnaround situation, that can always uh, bring good skills. Um, and I think when I looked at um, some of the photos of your board members, they looked awfully like our board <laughs> members. <laughs> and I imagine you have a number of accountants and lawyers and the sort of people that... Yeah, that the diversity and... Yeah. You know, boards, the, the, the skills. Mm -hmm. uh, I know when I'm on a board, you know, I'm, I, I represent part of the education sector, but you have to have someone who does understands the financials, other people who understand organizations and organizational behavior. So I agree that those uh, having a well-rounded board is really important. Yes. It really is. Uh, and in making our uh, recommendations for appointment, we do a skills analysis of the whole board, whether that's, uh, and, and that includes both the ministerial appointees and the council appointees. So we are very concerned with skills. We're also increasingly concerned with board behaviours. <laughs> Do we have stories? <laughs> um, and um, we've had one or two failures recently, which is of great concern to me because we've worked hard to get people with the right skills there. We're not quite sure yet um, what has gone wrong in one or two cases and so we are increasingly concerned with what the boards are actually doing when they come together 
So we've um, established a framework for good governance. Um, that includes the skills and capabilities, but it also focuses on the role of the board and strategic planning, um, the, uh, how they are managing the performance of the chief executive, and whether they're using good governance practice, um, how they are operating at a, how the operational activities mm -hmm. of the board itself. Now that isn't to replace any kind of self-assessment that we expect the board to do, preferably with an outside facilitator, but it's to complement it. Yeah, we, do, we spend a lot of time, our organization spends a lot of time working with boards through retreats. And the institute that I do, one, we focus on the roles and responsibilities and the differences so that the chief executive and the administration of our institutions um, and the board members, you know, there's trying to avoid micromanagement. Uh, the board sets the policy and they have a, a major policy role. However, it is the administration's role to, to implement those policies. And we try to clarify. Sometimes um, there's a little bit of, of uh, overlap. And so our institutes and our retreats and our governance leadership institute um, uh, we spend a lot of time working on the differences and answering questions on whose role and whose responsibility is it to cover certain aspects. Um, one question I have for you is uh, there are um, 1,100 community, over 1,100 community colleges throughout the United States. Um, how many um, polytechnics are there in New Zealand and how many, I, I don't know how many uh, four-year universities we have, but how many do you have? Well, the big difference between our two countries is one of scale. <laughs> <laughs> we have eight universities uh -huh. and 16 polytechnics. Are, are um, they all public? Um, uh, some private? Uh, they're all public. Ah, okay. Yeah, uh, we don't, um, I believe, have any private universities. We have private training establishments and they tend to be focused on a particular skills area. Mm -hmm. uh, so as far as I know, we haven't yet got <laughs> private universities. <laughs> but the day may come, indeed. One of the reasons I asked that question is that um, accreditation is a major issue um, for our colleges throughout the whole nation. And this we have regional, um, national regional accrediting um, associations. And these associations do different sections of the country. And they have um, um, a whole series of standards um, on which colleges um, need to, you know, need to make sure that they follow. And um, most um, importantly is that we want our students to go to accredited institutions, stu um, uh, institutions that have that, you know, that stamp saying that yes, you are, you have passed your uh, national accreditation, um, um, and these accrediting bodies will go in and they'll examine 
uh, every detail of the institution, their financials, you know, the board, uh, the policies, you know, how students are taking care of, I mean, so many aspects, faculty curriculum, uh, distance learning, all, every aspect of an operating um, college. And I'm wondering, in, in uh, what do you have for New Zealand? These are outside third-party evaluations, and they do, you know, they c typically do this every 10 years. However, some of them are doing them every five years, mm -hmm. and then um, colleges still have to do, uh, some of them do annual reports. So it really is a, it's an ongoing kind of um, process. Do you have anything similar uh, in New Zealand? We have the New Zealand Qualifications Authority, the NZQA, and that works to accredit particular qualifications, and it also uh, has um, a sort of auditing function in that it will go into each institution and um, undertake um, an EER, <laughs> an, an evaluation review. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is done on a regular basis. It won't be annually unless there's a problem, but it will be every uh, three or four years. And the grade that um, is achieved in the EER is a very important one. For the universities, there's the Academic Qualifications Authority, and that is part of Universities New Zealand. So it's more of a self-regulating mm -hmm. body, um, but the universities are very much looking overseas um, and, and comparing and benchmarking against um, overseas performance. Hey everyone, I want to take a quick break to remind you all that the 50th annual ACCT Leadership Congress is coming up and we're looking for innovative presentations from ACCT member colleges and affiliates. Check out congress.acct.org for our call for presentations, to register, to find out about sponsorship opportunities and more. And now, back to the show. I really um, wanted to know for your board members and senior management, what has the potential to keep them awake at night? <laughs> uh, budget, budget, budget typically is uh, very, very important to uh, our board members. Um, just recently, I'm thinking um, one of them keeping their president. One of the, the things that's happening across our nation is that the role of the chief executive of our institutions is getting more and more complex as um, technological change, societal change, political change. So many issues um, um, are being brought forward uh, in our colleges. Community colleges in the United States are open access. It, we don't, we can't regulate who comes to our door. door. We don't pick and choose uh, our students. And, and with that comes a whole variety. The diversity, which we, we cherish, brings a whole um, array of different issues. And now, uh, more and more now, we're looking at how to serve those individual students. What we know, if we all have cell phones today, is that students can pick and choose where they go. Um, 
but we know many of our students really need that homegrown, need to be near where they work or live or where they have families um, to get their education, to uh, progress further in jobs. And so there's so many aspects. Um, we'll go back to we serve everyone and everyone's needs. Um, and so keeping our chief executive uh, and developing the kind of operation and cabinet um, that serves everyone is getting more and more complex. Um, jobs are changing. I mean, the world is changing with technology and um, artificial and extended intelligence, all of this. And we see oftentimes that it's very difficult for boards to keep really good presidents who want to move on. So that's something that keeps them up at night. How long um, are the presidents appointed for? Is it a limited term or is it an ongoing appointment? It really varies. I talked to a president uh, just yesterday at an institute I gave in North Dakota, and he said he was hired with a one-year appointment, and then he, if he did well at the end of the year, they renewed his contract for three years. So typically, you know, um, it, it, individual colleges will have different agreements. I would say three years is typically the average contract. However, in my institute yesterday, there were seven or eight presidents. Mm -hmm. And you, you know, one had been a president for 16 years, uh, two had been presidents for four or five years. So really good folks, um, good presidents who are getting along with their board. Again, it's, it's that board president relationship that's so critical. Mm -hmm. Getting along with their board was so important. And, and part of our message in our institute to support your president. They need to take risk. They, they're dealing with challenging issues um, that students have, um, that the budget has, and support your president and, and you know, encourage them if, if they're good. You know, be patient. Change takes time. And sometimes presidents have to do bold and brave things. <laughs> that uh, shocks some folks, but they're important and they're needed. To what extent are your boards president-led? Is is there uh, what is the balance between the board and the and the president? Well, the um, our our boards are not really president-led. Um, in fact, that's one of the issues why we do roles and responsibilities. We try to clarify this through our retreats and our institutes and our training so that they understand what the board role is. And again, we really focus in on that policy. They make the policies. The procedure and how you implement the policy, that's the role of the president. Um, we tell boards you have one employee, and your one employee as an employer, is the, the college president. You don't, you know, the president's staff, they are not your employees. You can't, you know, tell staff what to do. What you do is through policy and guidance uh, and planning and, and mutually agreed on, on goals, um, you determine what needs to be done. You develop the policies to make that, um, so that can um, be in effect. Mm -hmm. And then it's the president and the president's cabinet and, and the rest of the administration to implement those policies. Mm -hmm. And as I said, sometimes it's a fine line. I know um, the happiest presidents and the happiest boards is when they communicate well. Um, as I say, play nicely in the sandbox and, and get along. Mm -hmm. um, so. Um, there's it's coordination it's collaboration and 
excellent. What is needed is excellent, excellent communication. Do you do any training with um, boards and presidents? Or oh, yes, yes. In our institutes, we do them together. And, and when they do their self-assessments, their self-assessments, the board only fills out the self-assessment, and there are questions um, in the self-assessment about the relationship with board members and, and the president. Um, and um, however, when they look at the, the, our analyses and all of that, they look at them jointly with the president. So the president gets a copy of that report as well. Uh, it's really important. And, and another major role that the board has is to evaluate that president. Mm -hmm. And our organization does presidential evaluations as well. And, and helping identify, uh, mutually identified goals and helping monitor how well that the president um, does in achieving those goals as well as uh, the institutions achieving their goals. If a board is successful, <laughs> um, that is an interesting question. Success is looked in in a variety of ways, just as we look at student success in a in a variety of ways. Um, I think a board is successful if they have a good relationship with their president. If that president wants to stay on because he or she has a really good working relationship with the board, if the board uh, members like each other and 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 agree to the roles, um, boards. Uh, it's really important that boards um, don't speak out of turn. The responsibility for, let's say, the public interface is with the board chair. You know, um, board members don't act as independent entities. So successful boards are good behaviors, good headlines, or actually no bad headlines, <laughs> uh, keeping their president, um, and, uh, and, and being um, open, honest, and fair, you know, with um, other board members, being respectful, uh, and, uh, you know, listening to their constituencies, representing their communities well. Do you have students or staff on your boards? Yes, many, many of our boards have student representatives, um, board members who attend every meeting, that participate in the discussions. Yes, we think that's really important. And they, they have, typically there's someone at the college who's the board liaison staff that provides, you know, minutes of the meetings, documents, and, you know, helps set up and arrange the different board activities. In 2010, the ITP Polytechnics Governance was reformed, and at that time, students and staff were no longer part of the board, um, but it is about to be reformed again, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at least one member of staff and one student will now um, assuming the bill is um, successfully passes through Parliament, um, they, they will be reinstituted onto the boards. Yeah, we have in this country, they're called, we call them sunshine laws. 
quotations around sunshine laws, but it, it, the, um, the idea that board meetings are open to the public, so they're not like secret uh, sequestered meetings. They're, they certainly have some uh, private meetings when they're discussing personnel issues yes. and things like that, but these open meetings are really important, and board members, excuse me, faculty members, students, um, you know, often attend these meetings, and they have the ability to sign up that they would like to make a statement or bring up a particular issue. So it, it's important these open, um, these sunshine laws um, really provide an avenue so that board members really understand that they are representing their, their communities. No part of the board meeting closed, or oh, yeah, yes, th they do have um, they do have these closed sessions. As I said, um, yes. discussing personnel, uh, maybe some financial issues that you know, and and maybe some um, training issues, so that it's clear that the board understands, you know, um, some more complex issues before they necessarily go public in in a meeting, and and so yes, so they have a little bit of both. Uh, it's similar in New Zealand in that um, the uh, public have a right to attend the meetings but also um, there's an arrangement whereby uh, closed sessions can be held again for financial or personnel or possibly commercial reasons. Mm. Exactly. It's mm. it's pretty much the same. At, at some point in time, uh, we know board members need to, um, you know, if they don't understand something, and that's not something they would like to have public, you know, they, they have some training opportunities so that they can fully understand complex issues. Um, uh, our board members come from a whole array. Many of them are elected um, by governors of the individual states. Um, many of them are appointed, and sometimes there's a committee there's just one question I, I have left, and that is you've mentioned the importance of the relationship between the president and the board, and I assume this is a way of driving performance, are there, of the institution mm -hmm. and, and uh, student achievement, are there any other levers that boards can use to do that? One of the most important things is honesty and, 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 and making sure that um, when they do their accrediting process, that it's all right to recognize areas that need improvement. People think you should hide those areas. No, the accreditors will find them anyway. It's so much better if if there are we need to improve on these issues. So those levers where the accrediting boards, um, accrediting associations. Um, will use what colleges say that they need improvement as areas to do improvement. They don't just come in and, and make up things. It's what they, you know, if they're honest in their reporting and open in their reporting and, and those honest conversations are happening, then a board, you know, accrediting agencies will pick up on that and that becomes a lever. Thank you, Norma. If you have more questions about this conversation, podcast ideas, or questions for our team, please don't hesitate to get in touch. If we can, we'll answer your questions on air. Thanks for listening to this episode of In the Know. We'll see you next week.